Hey, this is Byron, and I'm the lead pastor here at Redemption Church. Thanks for listening to our weekly sermon podcast. I hope this message blesses you, encourages you, and helps you experience life change through Jesus. For more sermons like this, blogs, resources, or opportunities to get connected, visit us at www.redemptiontx.com. I love 11 a.m. There's just, you got your coffee, you're awake. Worship was awesome. Amen. Amen. All right. They do an excellent job, don't they? It's beautiful. All right. So, Romans 8. Who's excited? All right. Continuing on this, it's great. I thoroughly enjoyed Brandon bringing the word last week. We're going to continue on in Romans 8. We're going to be doing verse 12 through 17 today. So, first off, uh, I want to ask you guys a few questions. Don't feel obligated to raise your hand. I don't want you know, put anybody on blast or make you feel uncomfortable. But I want to start off with a few questions. So how many of you in this room never grew up with a father? From the, from the time you were little, didn't know him, wasn't around for one reason or not, but you just never, never had a father. Okay, so if you didn't, you probably knew someone who did. So how many people know someone who grew up without a father in their life? Now, some of you probably had a father. Maybe he wasn't the best father. Maybe he struggled with some addictions or, you know, whatever it was. Maybe he wasn't there, didn't come to your games, didn't support the family. Maybe he was away. How many of you had something similar like that growing up? Fair, fair bit. How many of you had a father, but whether through, you know, unforeseen circumstances, divorce, or, you know, maybe, maybe your father passed away earlier than you'd like? Like, we can all relate to that. There's at least a few people in there that can relate to that. Now, some of you are thinking, I had a great dad. <laughs> My grandpa's awesome. I, I brag about him all the time. Best dad Southeast Texas ever had. He's the one. He's the one. Maybe that's you. If that is, awesome. Great, great. Appreciate that. The point is, fatherhood is important. I just recently became a father uh, not too long ago, about six months. And that's been a journey and an experience for sure. Holly just went back to work not too long ago, so I was scared, excited, but I was super pumped. We were going to have Jackson duty, and that's what I called when I got to spend time with him and Holly was at work. So it was just a man's day. We were going to, you know, hikes in the yard, you know, that big adventure 20 feet from the back door. Um, but I was excited, man. It was bonding time, me and my son. And so Jackson's like me, very ADD, squirreling out, looking at stuff. So he loves outside. He loves watching the wind blow the trees. We have a bunch of trees in the backyard. He likes watching the squirrels, the dogs run around. So we had this big bay window in the living room. So somewhere along the line, me and Holly were like, let's put a changing station there. He can look at the trees and the animals and we'll change them. It'd be great. So we're somewhere mid-morning and we're playing and it's time to change his diaper. I set him up there on the, uh, on the windowsill. And so he's looking, he's laughing, he's giggling, he's excited. So I'm wrestling off this onesie New dads understand what I'm talking about. And so I get it off. I get the diaper undone, and I'm wiping him out, cleaning him up. And I'm like, all right, you know, this isn't that bad. Holly's gone. I got this. I'm going to be a decent dad. I, I'm doing good so far. And so I have my hand kind of like on the windowsill leg area. I was like, I don't want him to fall off. And then I get in trouble. Holly kills me. But, yeah, I didn't want him to get hurt either. Let's be honest. I didn't want to get in trouble. <laughs> and so... So I have my hand here, and then I have this uh, diaper station. We were, 
We were those parents. We we're like, yeah, everything, diapers are lined up, got the sensitive wipes, got the Boudreaux's butt, uh, butt paste. Yeah, we got I got stuff that he ain't going to need till he's 10 sitting in this thing. But we were ready. I was ready. So I got my hand here, and I reached to get this diaper, and I grabbed it, and I'm like, all right, cool. That's got like a Mickey Mouse on it. Cool, whatever. And I turn around, and Jackson is peeing in his face. <laughs> so I went from like, this, this is cake. What's Holly talking about? You know, she's back at work, too. Oh, wow, my son's peeing in his face. Um, so I have this weird, like, matrix move. I'm trying to block it with my hand, and then it's, like, deflecting on me. And then so I roll him away from the windowsill, and he's peeing all over the window. <laughs> Meantime, he's dying laughing. Great time. Covered in pee. I'm covered in pee. Windows, you know, it is. And so he eventually, st- he eventually stops, and I'm just, what happened? Like two seconds, I was like, yeah, and then I'm covered in pee. He's having a grand old time, probably laughing at me. So I learned that always, always new dads, have that diaper ready. Don't ever waste any time when it's off, have it ready. And then Jackson learned that he gets two baths a day when he does that. So I'm going to make mistakes. I'm new to this fatherhood. Hopefully he doesn't pee in his face anymore. Lord, help me. I'm, I'm going to make mistakes, but we'll be okay. So what if I told you God is also a father? Matter of fact, he's not just a father. He's the father, the ultimate father. Imagine a father who loves so deeply and so pure that as humans, we can't even fathom that love. A father that will never mess up. He'll never abandon you. Always be there. That's God. And that's what Paul is going to continue telling us on in Romans chapter 8 as we continue this series. Um, So we're going to start with chapter 12. I'm going to read through it real quick, and then we'll break it down from there. And I've titled uh, today's sermon, The Gospel Makes Us Family. So we'll start in verse 12. He picks up. He says, So then, brothers, we are debtors not to the flesh, so to live according to the flesh. For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to the death the deeds of the body, you will live. For all who are led by the Spirit of God are sons of God. For you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons, by whom we cry, Abba, Father. The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. And if children, then heirs heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So we'll start with verse 12. The first point that Paul wants to uh, stand out is that we are a family. He calls us brothers. So right off the bat, we're brothers, we're family. We have a tight-knit unit. We're there, and then immediately, boom, hey, you're a debtor as well. Man, that didn't last long. That good feeling went away pretty quick. But as we saw last week with uh, Brandon told us, we have two choices. We have a choice to live in the Holy Spirit, or we have a choice to follow our sinful human nature. So that's what he's talking about here. He's going to expound on living in the Holy Spirit and what that means for us, specifically becoming heirs with Christ. So he says, so then, brothers, family, and then boom, the bad word, debtors, not to the flesh, to live according to the flesh, for if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. 
So that's the good news. We're brothers. Perfect. Awesome. And then, so he's reiterating, like we said, the gospel makes us family. So if we're debtors, he says, we're debtors to live according to the flesh. So debtor is a noun, meaning a person who owes a debt. Paul says we are debtors not to the flesh, but to live according to the flesh. The key word to focus in on here is flesh. Paul's using a Greek word called sarx, S-A-R-X. And so the best translation we have in English is flesh, but this original Greek word has two meanings. It can mean the literal body, flesh, or it can mean your sinful human nature. So it's important to know that Paul uses both of these throughout his writings, and uh, not only Romans, but his, his other writings as well. So in English, this is what we refer to as a homophone, a word that is spelled the same but has two different meanings depending on the context it's being used. For example, today's date is July 14th, 2019. I took Holly on a date last week. The leaves change color in the fall. An airplane leaves the airport. So this is what, keep that in mind as we work through this today. So Paul says we're debtors. Again, not to live according to the flesh. So Paul's showing us that we have those two choices. He's reiterating from the first section of chapter 8. So our sinful nature, we can either be a slave to it, so we can be a slavery to sin, or we can live in the Holy Spirit and become a son of God. So we naturally live when we're born. We're all born. We're all born into a sinful nature. That goes all the way back to Adam and Eve, the first fall of mankind. So what does that mean that when we're born, we're born into a debt of sin or we have a sin debt? So when I say debt you probably most likely went money. You're like, oh, the mortgage, you know, the student loans, the car, you know, the credit cards. You just automatically went to monetary needs. Paul's talking about something completely different here. He's talking about our sin debt. So we're born into that sin debt. So what happens if we don't pay back our car loan? They come and repossess your car. You don't pay your mortgage. They send you those letters in the mail that you say you never got and threw away in the trash and they repossess your house. So if we know we don't pay our monetary debts, what happens if we don't pay our sin debt? Paul's gonna explain that here. And the unfortunate news is to pay back that sin debt, it's paid with death. It's paid with not only a physical death, but a spiritual death. Now that's a Byron sermon, I've never heard one. You will die, spiritually and physically, you'll die. He'll give me later for that, I'm sure. <laughs> now, some of you are thinking, yeah, that's pretty bad. Like, I'm, it's been, wait, wait, I, that Dave Ramsey guy from not long ago, I, I took the course. I paid him that money to tell me how to pay off my stuff. I paid off that, the, both my car notes. I don't have those, so that's good. I paid off my mortgage about 10 years early, saved some interest on that. So, surely, it, surely there's a way I can pay down this sin debt. You know, maybe I'll, maybe I'll volunteer at the homeless shelter. Maybe I'll donate some food to the, you know, the food pantry, the soup kitchen downtown. You know, it's sin debt. Maybe I should start, maybe I'll volunteer at church. Yeah, that'll really get it going. I'll volunteer at church. That'll help, you know, it may not pay it off, but it'll get it down some. Ooh, I'll join a community group. Not only it's Sunday, but now I'm going to go Wednesday. God knows, hey, I'm two days a week. That's pushing it. That's going to get that sin debt down. 
if that's you, I hate to break that to you. That's legalism. While those things are good in and of themselves, none of that's going to pay down your sin debt. Sin has to be paid with death. Only death. That's the only thing that's going to pay off the sin debt. Death. So my sin and your sins, everybody's sins who were ever born, are so big that Jesus, or God had to send his son Jesus to earth, fully human and fully God, to die in our place on that cross to pay that sin debt. So he goes on to point two and says, you can be a slavery to sin or you can be a son of God. So you know there's no way we can pay back that sin debt. You know, what do you, what do, you do? Are you like Wiley Coyote and the Roadrunner? You toss up that sign that says, oh, well, like the Roadrunner got me. I'm good. I'll just, you know, cash in my chips. I'll just die now. Of course not. Of course not. It's not what you're going to do. We have what the Bible calls the Holy Spirit, what Jesus himself calls the helper. So in John 14, 16, it says, and I will ask the Father, and he will give you another helper to be with you forever. And then back in Romans 8, verse 13, but if by the Spirit, the helper, you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. Excellent. All right. That's good news, right? Amen? Amen. Now we know there's a way to repay that debt. So... That leads on to, how do I get this Holy Spirit? How do I get this helper? Am I going to have to remortgage the house to pay for this, you know, this uh, helper? How am I going to do that? The good news is, all you have to do is accept Jesus Christ as your Lord and Savior. When you do that, the Holy Spirit will be given to you. You'll be granted access. So here at Redemption, we follow the biblical doctrine of indwelling of the Holy Spirit. Upon belief and acceptance of Jesus Christ as Lord, there is nothing you have to do to earn this gift of grace and mercy. All you have to do is accept it willingly. Once we've received Christ in our hearts, the indwelling of the Holy Spirit is with us. We, we don't earn it. It's freely given to you. His grace and mercy says, here, you can have it. You, don't, you can't earn it. So go back to the use of the word Sarks for a minute. I told you about sinful nature and human flesh. So just because we get saved and come to know and follow Jesus, that doesn't mean that we're never going to sin again. We're not, it doesn't mean you're not going to be tempted. It's not, you know, rainbows and butterflies. If they, if you're told being a Christian life is easy and wonderful, I'm sorry somebody lied to you, but you will be tempted. You will sin. You will fail. We're going to face temptations daily. This is where the Holy Spirit or the helper comes in. Paul lets us know that we have to put to death our sinful nature with the help of the Holy Spirit. Notice that Paul says we. He doesn't say the Holy Spirit will. He says we. We have to put our sins to death. While the Holy Spirit gives us strength and power to overcome sin in our lives, it will not do it for you. We have to commit to live by God's word and let the Holy Spirit guide us through this. You'll hear terms like you have to die to yourself daily. Every morning, you got to commit to waking up and putting sin to death in your life. The Holy Spirit's going to help you. It won't do it for you, but you have to wake up and say, Lord, you sent me a helper. I'm going to use it. Today, I'm putting sin to death in my life. And fortunate for us, we just finished an entire series called Wisdom for Living over the book of Proverbs. Excellent book. 
God knew we would struggle, so he said, hey, I'm going to give you a book that tells you how to deal with every temptation you're going to face. So that's an excellent, if you haven't heard that, hopefully all of you heard it. If not, it's on our website. You can go look it up and re-listen to it. That's something good enough to listen every couple months, six months, 12 months, go back and, and keep it on repeat. And if that's not enough, Byron, Pastor Byron gave us a couple sermons in our Mark series in 2018. Uh, the two sermons that I'm specifically referencing are Jesus and demons and Jesus versus Satan. And it's all about letting sin sleep on your couch. So in these sermons, he's reminding us that we can't let sin into our house freely. We can't let it stay. This goes back to putting sin to death. You don't just let you know, Satan come in and chill on your couch, play your video games, eat your Cheetos, and just not you know, just be there. You kick him out, you put it to death. That's how you get rid of him. So we can't let sin hang around in our life. Okay, we get that. But I'm going to take it a step further. We must identify the sin in our life. We have to call it out. Once you identify it, call it out and put it to death, you know what you're facing. You have an enemy. You have a specific point. We do not sin generically. We sin specifically. You must call out that sin and put it to death. This isn't something we ought to do or should do because, you know, it sounds right. Paul tells us we're obligated to do this. We're obligated to put our sin to death. Now, I've said death probably, I don't know, 50 times already. It's probably lost its meaning somewhere today. You know, we say, oh, I died laughing at that joke last week. Or, you know, I just want to redefine what Webster's defines death as. They state, death is the end of life, the total and permanent cessation of all the vital functions of an organism, extinction, departure from life, termination of existence. So in other words, we must end our sin. We must take a permanent cessation to sin. We must make sin extinct. We must terminate its existence. So no matter how you put it, define, you have to put sin to death, period, point blank. So there's a book here, Ooh, almost fell. Um, it's called Redemption, oddly enough, fitting, you're in Redemption Church. Our freedom class is going through this. Our prayer team is reading through this. If you haven't read it, great, great read. The author, Mike Wilkerson, puts it this way. He says, we are free to put sin to death because Jesus already put it to death on the cross. That's it right there. That's good news. That's the gospel right there. But highly encourage you to read this book. So do not let sin hang around and survive in your life. So I want to get a little personal here. We're going to be specific. We don't sin generically. We sin specifically. If you struggle with desire and lust, stop looking at pornography. Stop looking at swimsuit models on Instagram. Stop scrolling through things on your newsfeed that you know you shouldn't be liking and following. It's that simple. You don't let it hang around and tempt you. You put it to death. You struggle with drugs and alcohol, stop going to the bars every weekend and hanging out. You're not going to get the helper from a bottle. It's not going to happen. You struggle with drugs, stop hanging out with people that give you drugs. It's going to be hard. You're going to have lifelong friends that you have to cut ties with. But the Bible says, 
Your sin will kill you. What's more important, you dying or saving face with a friend? Stepping on some toes and stepping on my toes myself. This is where the Bible is a mirror first. This right here may be the most smart and worst thing ever created. Pun intended, smartphone, get it? This makes it so easy to get distracted and tempted nowadays. Anything you want to look at can be pulled up in a matter of seconds. If this is keeping you from reading this and speaking to your father, put it down. Get rid of it. If Netflix and Hulu is keeping you from reading your Bible, cancel the subscription. Unplug your TV. Sell your iPad. I some, some people are, you know, that's, that's tough. Get rid of it. Remember when life was simpler when the phone was on the wall with a cord? Now, granted, some of you older people are like, what does he know? I'm almost 31. I remember the phone on the wall. I was younger, but I, I didn't wait around for it to ring. I was out there playing in the neighborhood. I didn't pick up my phone to see what someone was doing. I went and knocked on their door. Said, hey, is Scotty home? Is Aaron home? Did we forget what it's like to see people face to face? Put those sins to death. Theologian John Owen, very good guy, you should look him up. He puts it this way, be killing sin or it will be killing you. It's very straight and to the point. So we know we're a family of debtors. We know we have the option of slavery to sin or be a son of God. So now Paul's gonna tell us that we can be family forever. And I know we're just getting started here. Still have a few verses to go, but I want to hang out here for a minute and I want to clarify something um, real quick for everybody. So you may be thinking at this point, what happens if I sin after I get saved? Yeah, you, you just said I have the helper, but you also said I'm going to struggle and fail. What happens when I fail? Am I doomed? Of course not. Of course not. Remember, in verse 13, he says, For if you live according to the flesh, you will die. But if by the Spirit you put to death the deeds of the body, you will live. So this verse is kind of not really tricky, but it's been debated between a couple of theologians, not just today, but throughout you know, all time. Usually it's compared or contrasted with Romans 8.1, which we heard Brandon preach over last week. In verse 1, just to recap, it says, There is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. So this debate boils down to basically two different views on your eternal security. One view would have you believe, we'll just use this up. One view would have you believe that once you are saved, that sin can lure and entice you back in and into itself and cause you to lose your salvation or lose your uh, eternal security. The other view would have you believe that once you receive your eternal security with God, it can never be taken from you, no matter how much sin you may fall into after salvation occurs. 
So both of these views are usually either far one way or far the other. There's usually not too many people that settle somewhere in between and have a, a decent grasp on where they stand. It's either all or nothing on either side. So it's my personal belief that once you gain your eternal security through Christ, you will always have it. But that does not give you a license to go and do whatever you want. You can't get saved and just say, all right, that's it, I'm saved. I'm out, we're gonna go party. Doesn't work like that. Paul actually addresses this two chapters earlier in Romans 6, 6, 1 and 2. He says, what shall we say then? Are we to continue in sin that grace may abound? By no means. How can we who died to sin still live in it? So think again. You, you, well, we started this with, you know, if I sin, do I, get, do I get kicked out? Am I not a son of God? How does that work? No, if, if I sin, is my family going to say, Andy, you sin. We don't love you anymore. Bye, I'll see you. We don't want you. Of course not. The gospel makes us family. Therefore, those around us help us when we struggle. That's actually what we're called to do here in the Bible. Because the gospel makes us family, we're called to bear one another's burdens. So now, not only do you have your smaller family, you have this family of believers that you attend church with that are there to help you walk through those times. That's good news. You have more people to help you. That's always a good thing. So what does this look like practically in mine and your life? What does it look like? So think back to the first time you rode a bike, you played a sport, you picked up an instrument. Were you perfect at it the first time you picked it up? Could you ride in the Tour de France? Could you, you know, go to an MLB ballpark and hit home runs? Of course not. None of us could. That's not how it works. It takes practice. So you practice hours, 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 days, weeks, months. And for those of you that have kids in sports or band, you know that it takes hours because you got to drag them there after work and all hours of the night. So it's the same thing with our spiritual relationship and how we grow in that relationship. Except instead of calling it practice, it's called sanctification. So sanctification is another one of those you know, college words that Byron likes to define. So sanctification is defined as a state of proper functioning. To sanctify someone means to set them apart for the use intended by the designer. So we know we must die to ourselves daily. Remember, as soon as we're born, we're sinful. Nothing we can do about that. Adam and Eve set that standard a long time ago. So we know when we wake up, we have to kill those old habits that lead to more sin. So Galatians 2.20 says, I have been crucified with Christ. It is no longer I who live, but Christ who lives in me. The life I now live in the flesh, I live by faith in the Son of God, who loved me and gave himself for me. We must deny our sinful desires and live by faith. With the help of the Holy Spirit and our faith, we're able to make progress every day on this journey of sanctification. Every day, we're able to take one step further, one step further. When we put to death our old habits and our sinful nature, that, what does that look like? What does that look like in our lives? It looks like us striving to look more like Christ and less like ourselves. 
that's the ultimate goal here, to look more like Christ and less like Andy. I'm sinful. I want to look more like Christ. So we will mess up. We will fail. We will sin. But God's grace and the help of the Holy Spirit help us to grow and learn from those mistakes so that we don't do it again. The Holy Spirit helps us to move along this path of sanctification. Luckily for us, there are a few things that we can do regularly to help us stay on that path, on that journey. A a while back, uh, roughly last year, mid last year, Pastor Byron did some Facebook Live videos, just little 10, 12 minute uh, excerpts to keep you going throughout the week. And so he gave us five ways to remain you know, in contact with the Holy Spirit and, and making sure we're following that path of sanctification. The first one is to read your Bible daily. So I have mine right here. It's God's way of communicating with us. This is a living, breathing word, divinely inspired, without error, God's word. You can read this same verse a thousand times and he will speak to you in a different way a thousand times. This is how God communicates with you. If you're not reading your Bible, how can you talk to God? And he follows up with point two. He says, pray daily. Praying is a demonstration of our affection and our way of talking to God. If you can't hear God talk to you, how can you respond to him in prayer? You need to be doing both of these daily. The third point, he says, is be in community with other believers. We aren't meant to do life alone. Remember, the gospel makes us family. What do families do? They gather around, they hang out, they have meals together, they go places. You just found out you have a whole extended family of roughly two to 300 people at Redemption. That's, a, that's an awesome meal. I'm pretty excited about that. Whose house are we going to after this? Um, <laughs> the fourth is attend church regularly. Remember, we just found out we had this new family. You can't communicate with them if you're not attending church with them regularly. That helps build a natural spirit rhythm. And then five, serve others. The gifts God has given you are not designed for you. They're designed for others. So God created us in his image. When we're being sanctified by his grace, we're becoming less like us and more like him. An entire life, our entire life is a process of sanctification. That process only comes to completion two ways. When we die and meet him, or my personal favorite, when he comes back in his triumphant return and then like, we're good to go. That's, he's coming back with, with gusto. That's what I'm hoping for. So in this, I'm gonna redefine sanctification for you again through the lens. God is the designer. Sanctification helps us to be set apart for the use intended by the designer. Sanctification helps us look more like him, less like us. So through God's grace, okay, what does that mean? So you remember earlier when Paul told us not to sin that grace may abound. What does that mean? It means don't sin just so God can forgive you. I can't make that any more clear. Don't just go out and do something sinful just to say, oh, his grace has got me, I'm good. Don't do that, it doesn't work that way. So grace is defined as the freely given, unmerited favor and love of God. So to me, grace means I can't, but he can. And more importantly, he can and does 
even when I don't deserve it. He's that loving and that good and gracious that he does it when I don't deserve it. Now, some of you know I grew up uh, Southern Baptist, and so I'll keep it simple here. My dad was the choir director. My mom played piano, and so we, I was always inundated with those old raggedy Southern Baptist hymnals. Y'all know what I'm talking about? They're in the back of the wooden pew that is uncomfortable to sit in. It squeaks, and you know you don't know what to do, and you're trying to thumb through, and there's like a page torn out, and some kid, probably me, put gum in between a hymnal at one point. <laughs> yeah, that was probably me. Um, but there's one song that's always stood out to me. I'll never forget it as long as I live. Um, and it was about grace. I heard grace an awful lot um, growing up in, in, in a Southern Baptist church. And no, it's not Amazing Grace. That's a great song, but that's not what I'm talking about. The song's called Grace Greater Than All Our Sin. The chorus reads like this. I won't sing it. I'm not going to punish y'all by hearing me sing. Um, <laughs> it says, grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that will pardon and cleanse within Grace, grace, God's grace. Grace that is greater than all our sins. So remember, my dad was a choir director. And if you grew up Southern Baptist, you kind of know what I'm talking about. But if you don't, I'll I'll point it out for you. So this would be like Bo standing here and Bo's my dad. My mom is playing piano, which is over here. And there's an organ over here. There's no other instruments. It's piano, organ. That's it. And so you have Bo standing here. Byron would be down here. And then my mom's sitting there, and guess where me and my brothers had to sit? Front row, right in front of my mom and dad. So I got this bird's eye view of every Sunday of what this looked like. And this song will always stick with me, always. I remember sitting right there, I had that, I can can picture, I don't even know what those seats smell like. I just, floods back to you. I remember watching the pastor right there. My dad's leading, mom's playing. And I'm watching these people at the end of the service respond to this song and this message that had been. Now I was young. I don't remember what the message was. I just remember hearing grace. Grace, grace, God's grace. And I would see people just pouring down, pouring tears, pouring down, coming, you know, and just breaking down. And then you'd have people come down that were smiling, tears of joy. And they were just inundated with this grace. And at the time, I didn't know what they were dealing with, never will. But as a young boy, I knew I needed grace. I may not have known what grace was to its full extent, but I knew I needed grace. And that'll always stick with me. So now that we know we're family forever, Paul goes on to tell us, hey, we're not just family, we're heirs. So we have the sinful nature and you know we're we're trying to stay away from that we're putting that to death and we're we're walking with the help of the holy spirit in this journey of sanctification so what's the point of that journey why do we wake up and put our sins to death and die to ourselves daily what's the point of that journey what's the point of picking up a baseball and bat if you're not going to play in a game doesn't have to be a professional baseball game it can be a game that you put on for your family in the backyard What's the point of picking up that instrument if you're not going to play a song? Doesn't have to be in some famous symphony. It can be for your mom and dad in the living room. You practice to perform, to put it into action. Guess what? Paul knew we were going to ask what the point was. So he went ahead and addressed that in verse 14. He says, we are sons of God. 
okay, all right, wait, sons of God? Didn't he call us brothers earlier? Wait, we were brothers, now we're sons. What does that mean? Why is it only sons? So I want to take a second and clarify Paul's use of the word sons. You got to remember that Paul's writing to the church at Rome about 50 years after Jesus had died on the cross and, and resurrected. So at that time, the cultural norm, the man or male had you know, the most legal rights. If I, I don't have a sister, but if I did, and me and my sister were there and our family died, everything legally would go to me. She wouldn't have any say. So is Paul telling us that only men can be heirs with Christ? I want to make this as clear as possible. I want you to check back in if you've checked out. If there's one thing I want you to know, don't, don't leave this room without knowing this. Absolutely not. Paul is not putting down women in this scripture. As a matter of fact, he's elevating women to the status, the same status that men would have at that time. He's not excluding women. He's including women. He says they are just as worthy to inherit the kingdom as those men are. This is a bold, bold statement from Paul at the time. He's going against the cultural norms and saying they are just as worthy. And that's something we need to keep in mind here today. So whenever you see sons of God or brothers in Christ, this also includes women. So what does all that mean? It means the gospel makes us family. It doesn't matter if you have a family, if you don't have a family, or if you have a family in which you didn't. Sorry, John. Uh, just kidding. Just kidding. Uh, once you accept Jesus as Lord, you automatically become a part of the family. And then Paul's saying, specifically, you're children of God. Have you noticed a pattern yet at all? The gospel makes us family. That's pretty important. Let's hold on to that. So why does Paul make the distinction from brothers to sons of God. He says we're not just family, but heirs. Just as before, children normally inherit, you know, their parents' house or estate, if you will, whatever, when they pass on. So Paul's saying, he's boldly and proudly proclaiming that we as children of God are heirs to his kingdom, God's kingdom, heaven. Paul says we are no longer in slavery to fear, but adopted as a son by whom we cry, Abba, Father. When we accept Jesus Christ as Lord, we no longer are condemned or indebted to sin, but we are freely adopted by God the Father as one of his own children and as a rightful heir to the kingdom. So Paul uses a, a phrase here that I absolutely love. It, it's... One of those that sticks out, everybody has a favorite Bible verse. I have one tattooed on my arm here. This is kind of neck and neck with one of my favorites. He uses the word pairing, Abba, Father. Now, Father, we understand, you know, pretty self-explanatory, but he uses the word Abba. And so he says it here in Romans 15. He says, uh, for you, you did not receive the spirit of slavery to fall back into fear, but you have received the spirit of adoption as sons by whom we cry, Abba, Father. In Galatians 4, 6, Paul's also the author of that book. He says, and because you are sons, God has sent the spirit of his son into our hearts, crying, Abba, Father. The third time we see it is in Mark 14, 13. Jesus himself is saying it here. He's praying in the Garden of Gethsemane. He says, 
Abba, Father, all things are possible for you. Remove this cup from me, yet not what I will, but what you will. So this term here, we know Father. Abba is an Aramaic term for Father. Most commonly used in a family setting, like an intimate family setting from a child to their father. The closest translation we have today in English would be daddy. So when a child is young, it's easier for them to learn a two-syllable word instead of a single-syllable word. So it's easier for a child to learn daddy instead of dad, and then mommy instead of mom. So by pairing these two together, what Paul is saying is we have a deep, loving intimate relationship between a father and a child with God. This is exactly what we inherit when we become children of God, a deep, loving, intimate relationship and connection with God the Father. So the third time it's used is by Jesus himself. So I want you to note, Jesus isn't just saying this to a crowd or preaching, he's praying. So first off, if Jesus is praying, we should be praying too, amen? Um, So taking context, where Jesus is at. He's moments away from being betrayed by one of his closest followers. He's about to be handed over, tortured, brutalized, insulted, spat on, and then ultimately killed on a cross. The pressure of this impending moment is so intense that Jesus is sweating blood. And he's praying to his father And he cries out, Abba, Father, remove this cup. But he doesn't stop there. He says, not what I want, what you want. And that is so imperative today that he said, Lord, Father, not what I want, but what you want. So every time I read these words, I think of a little boy running to his dad you know, arms open, and he's just running, you know, laughing. He's saying, Daddy, Daddy, you know, just can't wait to get there. And then on the other end, you just have a dad saying, Come here, son. I love you. Come here. I can't wait to hug you. Come on, get here as fast as you can. It's so intimate and beautiful. It's just a, just a beautiful example. Now, we just celebrated Father's Day not too long ago, and I just got to celebrate my first Father's Day. I'm only able to say that because of this church here. My son is only here because of Redemption Church. And I don't mean that figuratively. Literally, he would not be here without Redemption Church. And I'll explain. My wife and I struggled through miscarriage and fertility for six and a half years after getting married. It wasn't until God spoke to Holly in prayer and he repeated his words in James 5, 14 through 15. Is anyone among you sick? Let him call for the elders of the church and let them pray over him, anointing him with oil in the name of the Lord. And the prayer of faith, remember prayer of faith, will save the one who is sick and the Lord will raise him up. So after a few weeks of praying this through and me kind of struggling with it, this was new to me at the time, we reached out to Byron and Byron was like, yes, couldn't say yes quick enough. We were halfway through, can we? Yes, like he was, yeah, come on. So the next week, in between services in downtown Beaumont, not far from where we are, on a street filled with bars. In between services, we had Chuck, Dee Dee, Crystal, and Bo, and they prayed with us, and they anointed us with oil. And remember I said prayer of faith? 
they prayed in faith. And if you've never experienced something like that, it is something that will shake you to your bones. I'm talking, I'm ugly crying, Holly's ugly crying, they're ugly crying, but it is so powerful. And that authority you have when you pray in faith is just monumental. And I pray we would all experience something like that. And if you don't believe that God answers prayers in faith and miracles, you can meet my son Jackson. He's in the nursery right now. He's about six months old. He's probably crying right now. If you hear someone crying, it's him. Um, so I tell you this to tell you, I tell you that to tell you this. So the first time I saw Jackson's face, I heard his cry. I had this spontaneous love and joy and compassion that I'd never knew before. You hear people talk about a love a parent has for, for a child, and I never knew what it was. I still can't explain it, but it's something I, I, I just can't put into words. It's, it's a gift, and I love it, and I'm sure mothers have the same thing. I can't speak for them, but I'm sure they have the same thing when they see it. So what does this all boil down to? It boils down to a faithful fulfillment. Verse 16 said, The Spirit himself bears witness with our spirit that we are children of God. So it seems a little bit redundant that we're saying, all right, yeah, we're children of God, children of God, children of God. Well, Paul's doing that. Remember, he's writing to the church at Rome. So again, 50 years roughly after Jesus died, they didn't have NCIS, they didn't have CSI, they didn't have forensic detectives, they didn't have blood splatter analysis, and any of that. For something to be verified as true in that time, you had to have two witnesses that said, yeah, I, w- I was there that day, I heard Jesus say that, and then someone else had to say, yeah, I was there too, I heard it, what he's saying is true. So you had to have two people to verify something as true. So what Paul's saying here is that, hey, he's claiming to be a child of God, and then the Holy Spirit's saying, hey, they're a child of God. This is true. What they're saying is true. You better believe it. Like, you got, by your standards, this is true. So that's good news for us. He's, you know, reiterating that we're children of God. So we proclaim our sonship, and the Holy Spirit proclaims it on our behalf. So Romans eight seventeen, he says, And if children, then heirs, heirs of God and fellow heirs with Christ, Paul continues to reinforce the validity of the children of God and heirs to the kingdom. So yes, we're still brothers, but we're also children of God who all cry out to the same Abba, Father. We have our two witnesses, the Holy Spirit and us, so we know it's true. And since we know it's true, we know that the heir to the kingdom is going to come to fruition. It's going to happen. One day we will become heirs with him. And what does that mean? We can talk about heirs of the kingdom, and I can say it all day long, but what does that mean? What does an heir to the kingdom mean? What it means is when we become heirs, there'll be no more sin, no more shame, no more fear, no more guilt, doubt, debt, pain, sickness, or condemnation, just life in the presence of Jesus Christ. A life so glorious that we can't even fathom. I mean, they paved the streets in gold. If the streets are gold, can you imagine what the rest is going to be like? Like, hallelujah, it's going to be amazing, can't wait, it's going to be mind-blowing, I love it. So Paul closes 17 with a word of encouragement to all believers. He says, then heirs, heirs of God, fellow heirs with Christ, provided we suffer with him in order that we may also be glorified with him. So he says we suffer. Like this is kind of gets glazed over at the end. We're like, yeah, heir to the kingdom, gold streets, I want that. Let's not skip over this part here. He says, we're going to suffer. Up until this point in chapter 8, he's kind of giving you a choice. 
life in the spirit or sin to slavery or slavery is sin. So he's kind of laid out the pros and cons, if you will. And he says, hey, when you choose that journey, that path of sanctification, and you choose Jesus with the help of the Holy Spirit, it's going to be tough. It's going to be hard. But hey, I gave you a family. The gospel is going to give you a family that's going to help you walk through that. So you got the Holy Spirit and those believers with you. So we're going to struggle. We're going to fail. We're going to fall on hard times. And if you don't believe that, look at Paul's life, the guy who's writing this book. Here's just a few examples of the struggles he faced. He faced death often, not just once. He faced it often. He was imprisoned multiple times. He was beaten with rods multiple times. He was robbed, left poor, hungry, and naked. He was kidnapped. He was shipwrecked. And uh, by the way, when he was shipwrecked on that island, he was bitten by venomous snakes, and it didn't kill him. So he's got a pretty rough life. Makes you feel a little bit better about your circumstances, doesn't it? So if he can make it, you can make it. So what does this all boil down to? What does this bring us to today? Whether you choose Jesus or not, he still chooses you. No matter what scenario you grew up in, father, no father, absent father, we all have a heavenly father. He's ready to welcome us with those open arms. He's ready to adopt us. He's ready to call us his own and give us his kingdom. He wants to make us heirs with him. All you have to do is accept what he's already done on the cross. It's already done. You just have to accept it willingly. No matter what Jackson does, he's always going to be my son. That's what God's telling us right now. No matter what you do, you're still my son. I still love you. Come to my kingdom. It's yours. This is what life change through Jesus is all about. Not just the people in this room, but everyone across Southeast Texas, Texas, Louisiana, Canada, Mexico, everywhere, across the corners of the of the earth. Your coworkers, your neighbors, your waiters, your waitresses, the people at the bank. Brandon made a point this morning. We have new invite cards. This is why we put these out, so that people we meet have a chance to be our family and become heirs with Christ. That's what it's all about. That's why redemption exists. That's why we exist, so that others would come to know him. So we see every man, woman, and child experience life change through Jesus. That's why we are here. Well, thanks again for tuning in with us here at Redemption Church. If this message was helpful to you in any way, leave a review, like, comment, or share with your friends to help others experience life change through Jesus. Oh.